I have to remind you that I remind the American doctor that the uh, the normal life is changing. If you are still, uh, if you are still think that the uh, you 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 should you should live your normal life, it's it's not true. Normal life is changing. Not only not only in China, but also in America, in in other countries. You have to think about it. It's not no normal life. It's a it's a COVID nineteen life. It's a pandemic life now. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. It's uh, it's March. Uh, it's Zach Shiner, and man, what a difference between one month ago, where we were talking about doing eCPR in the back of a semi truck in the middle of a parking lot in Walmart, and now. Man, things have changed. Things have changed a lot. And so uh, it's totally fitting that today we're going to talk about COVID. We're going to talk about ECMO. We're going to talk about uh, specifically, like, who do we put on? Like, this is going to be a very short but direct conversation about these tough questions. I know there's a million things going on with you, with me, with all of us as far as bigger things. PPEs, do we have enough protection? Do we need to isolate these people? How do we do this well? And how do we create a a system where the patients that uh, get tested get tested? All these much bigger issues. But for a very small amount of time, I want to have your bandwidth to just ask the question, who should we consider to put on ECMO? And I have with probably the U.S. expert on this right now, Janelle Badgelak. Janelle, thank you for, for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Zach. I'm not sure I qualify as the <laughs> U.S. expert, but it's certainly um, we've put a lot of thought into this, just given um, the sort of being in the red zone in Seattle and um, what should what what we should do with um, uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for ARDS for COVID. So yeah, so you know Janelle. Janelle is like she said, she's from Harborview up in in Seattle. She the epicenter for U.S. cases at least and has been dealing with this both in the ED and ICU. And so, Janelle, let's, uh, there's a lot of nuances to this question, but let's just start real broad. Who should we put on ECMO that is a COVID patient? Sure. So this is something we've been thinking about a lot. And I think that the, you know, the important question is, is should you put a patient on in the context of the capacity that you have for critical care? So the first question really needs to be, do you have the space, staff, and stuff to even initiate um, a patient on ECMO? Because if you don't, um, then all of the, you know, indications, contraindications for who should go on are irrelevant. Yeah, so resource allocation for sure. And I think in order to get to that question, on because we're not going to be able to answer that for every hospital, each, but each hospital is going to be different, we need to sort of wrap our hands around what we think the benefit to these patients is is there any benefit in putting someone with uh, with maybe pulmonary fibrosis on on VV ECMO, and then we can get into the whole myocarditis with VA ECMO. So let's let's break it down into just a piece without thinking about resource allocation as of yet. A patient that comes in and needs respiratory assistance, how do I decide which patient I should put on? Sure. So. Um, if you have the the resources and um, kind of setting up potentially a network of all the regional ECMO centers and coordinating, um, you know, who has the ability to do ECMO, 
if you're we're trying to sort out what should our selection criteria be and this is a real challenge because you know we've been trying to uh, work on communication across ECBO centers in the region and in the US and the world um, and talking about this a lot so so in general when we're trying to select um, patients for ECMO we're trying to find patients that we think have the best chance of survival and it seems that patients with comorbidities are doing very poorly um, no matter what the age so we think that it's probably prudent given the fact that we only have a very limited resource to try to select patients of course that are going to have the best outcome with ECMO but being really as, as stringent as we can so that we don't um, use tie up a resource that um, we really don't want to take resources from another sick patient but that this resource would be for a patient that we think has a, a reasonable chance of survival Okay. So when we look at this data, the, I mean, the, the little data that we have, the Lancet paper, we see that the people who got on even just intubation, that uh, 80% of those people died with COVID. So man, is, is even intubation. And then you see that they actually last for several weeks in the ICU bed before they ultimately die. Uh, these are huge strains on you and the ICU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's the thing where that's why I think that this conversation always has to start with capacity. I mean, no one's going to be comfortable with this as we surge and increase the volume of patients. And um, but um, having the having an eye on the ability to 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 even do this is really important. And that's of course why it's so important that we so-called flatten the curve so that as we get new cases of people who are critically ill, that we can continue to practice the same standard of care and we're able to offer advanced therapies like ECMO. So um, I guess to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, there are some things that we've considered is considering thinking about offering this for patients who have a P to F ratio of less than 100 perhaps less than 80 to mimic the aeolia criteria. It's hard to know, um, you know, how hypoxemic the patient should be. Um, you know, some would say, well, maybe we're having better or maybe seeing some better outcomes with a higher P to F ratio. However, I'm not sure if those patients are getting better despite ECMO and would have been supportable with mechanical ventilation and potentially lower utilization of resources or if we are putting them on earlier and mitigating some lung injury. With regard to lung injury though, it is really interesting that most of these patients have relatively compliant lungs. So the one of the main reasons that we utilize ECMO with patients with influenza is the compliance tends to be pretty terrible. So you're you know, faced with continuing mechanical ventilation in, injurious, in the setting of injurious lung injury versus turning to ECMO in order to promote gas exchange in a, uh, in a safer way for the lungs. So with COVID though, many of these patients, they don't run into that problem with uh, poor compliance and they tend to just be purely poor, really bad oxygenation. And some of them have worse compliance too. And of course, it's not, I guess, a surprise to me that the mortality is higher if the PDF is lower and the compliance is lower. But it begs the question if they should go on ECMO at all, if we're going on too late, or if they would have survived without it. It's really hard to know. Nobody knows. Okay. Yeah. So this this I mean it goes right back to the whole Eolia conversation that we've had for years. Like, are you just taking the patients that would have done well anyway? Around the hundred range, you're saying, well, they're already well enough. If they're at eighty, if they're at fifty, then okay, they're so hypoxemic that uh, maybe they're too sick. Is that is that the general thinking? 
yeah, that it's too too late. So I think that the the you know the biggest questions we have with ECMO in general are is is you know who and um, should go on ECMO and how we should do it. Um, and so and of course when you have a new disease that's you know the world really hasn't seen only has a couple of weeks or months of experience and we're trying to share our experiences with each other as fast as we can but it's really hard to know. Okay, so let's try and just do some comparison. So we say influenza, bad lungs. The MERS data, the little case series that we had with MERS that showed the 35% improvement with ECMO, do you think that has any validity with with COVID or is this something that we should kind of just say this is a whole new disease? I mean, uh, general principles of ARDS should theoretically apply. Um, and we, I mean, it's, we do see a difference in the recruitability and the compliance of the lungs, which was a main barrier to pursuing traditional mechanical ventilation with, with other causes of uh, viral ARDS. Um, so I guess we'll just sort of have to see. I think that it's reasonable, though, to if you're an ECMO center, to screen really young, otherwise healthy patients with a P to F less than 100 and to take a look at their general trajectory and think about should that young person be in an ECMO center because if they were to worsen, at least they're in an they are in a hospital where they can be placed on ECMO. So that's one way to sort of think about it. The other thing to think about is the use of mobile ECMO um, and potentially um, centralizing communication for uh, referring hospitals that if they have a young patient sort of on keep that patient on the ECMO center's radar so that if the patient is doing poorly then um, you can go out and retrieve the patient. You know, there really often isn't a, a big difference between what a, um, a, an ECMO center and a non-ECMO center can do if the, if the critical care intensivists are, you know, practicing the same standard of ARDS care. Um, it's just trying to find that window of the patient stable enough to transport, but we're really worried about the declining status um, and worried that we won't have a lot of room with uh, conventional therapies and want to try for ECMO. Yeah, I think brings up a couple points. One was that we had talked about earlier this week, just about how the ICUs fill up and then your ECMO capacity actually goes down because you're now filled up with with beds that you can't move out and therefore you can't get the young, probably good ECMO patient in. Right. And so I think it's really important to think about, you know, regionalized patient transfer and having some kind of dashboard where you can communicate with each other because you will see outbreaks is what we've seen in Seattle of a certain area, like a, a group living situation, which will completely overwhelm a hospital. And then they're, we're going to need to redistribute that load and share the load so that no one hospital ends up meeting crisis standards of care and needing to redistribute uh, scarce resources that we all kind of share that load um, and help each other. So like, for example, one of our, there's an incredible hospital, um, Evergreen in Seattle that has um, done amazing things with critical care. And if, you know, hospitals working together to be able to unload that hospital when they uh, reach capacity is really, is really important to reach out to each other. All right. And then the, the whole rapid deterioration that occurs with these patients. I mean, this is something that you are going to have to be ready for and transfer them quickly if you are going to try and send them to a center where they can do ECMO. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think um, with uh, we have one patient that we uh, that we transferred and placed on ECMO and it worked um, quite well to be for the with the communication that the intensivists the referring intensivists 
saw a, um, you know, the trajectory that was concerning to him that, um, you know, having more difficulty oxygenating this young patient um, and was truly single organ failure, just just um, hypoxemic and hypocarbic respiratory failure. And so, it, you know, communicated with us that, you know, thinking if this gets worse, um, we won't have um, other therapies to support him. So wanted to um, move him over for ECMO and, um, and, and, and that worked, that worked quite well, but it has, a, you know, if, if the communication between the referring and the receiving hospital is really key to determine timing, or if you're a center with a mobile ECMO team, you may have, um, a slightly different approach as far as the timing of potentially um, moving the patient and maybe able to wait a bit longer. Hmm. Good point. Okay. So some take home so far plan for the patient that or plan your ECMO beds accordingly to your whole hospital system, actually your whole probably county system. Do you have enough beds where you can actually rapidly transfer someone and be able to ha give them the capabilities of doing this in the right patient? Now who the right patient is, or I'm still a little... I'm still a little nebulous on this whole thing. So at an 80 level, maybe it's optimal. 100 level, maybe we're a little bit too early. And at a 50 level, we're a little bit too late. Give me some more info on that, Janelle. Sure. So, you know, I think screening the patients um, who are at a P to F less than 100, despite uh, low tidal volume ventilation, PEEP optimization, these patients really seem to respond to PEEP and prone positioning, and then consideration of inhaled vasodilators and neuromuscular blockade. Um, both which have um, uh, less maybe convincing data for um, efficacy or mortality benefit. Um, and then other things we think about is a potentially an age cutoff. As we can see with COVID mortality, it really um, tends to increase dramatically with each decade of life. But I think um, another thing that we're seeing with that is um, maybe as importantly or more importantly is the underlying comorbidities. And so whereas before maybe it would have been uh, you know, you know, other uh, ECMO centers are all trying to kind of uh, are all grappling with this, trying to understand should we change our inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria or not. But I think that when you really have a scarce resource in a pandemic, it probably makes sense to try to to narrow it enough that you're trying to be, you know, I guess as um, as mindful of this scarce resource as possible. So um, we're trying to um, utilize this in patients that don't have underlying comorbidities and don't have severe acute organ failure, other kinds of organ failure. We know that we're seeing a lot of cardiomyopathy and myocarditis, and it's, and it's hard to know, you know, traditionally myocarditis survival with VA ECMO is actually one of the best uh, groups of, of patients for survivability, but we don't know if COVID myocarditis is something that's survivable because you're going to have severe you know, heart and lung dysfunction. So, and so far some outcomes are, um, are, are not so great, but they're small in number. And also, um, it's also in the setting of, uh, of need outstripping capacity. So that's a really important, um, consideration when you're looking at mortality and understanding if the data that you're looking at is in a center where they were not able to maintain current, like regular standards of care, or if they were at crisis standards of care, because your mortality will be very different. Okay, so this I think this kind of leads into a whole bunch of things with uh, all the other great data sources out there. I will put a lot of this in the show notes. I'll tell you, uh, you'll get such varying information as far as the survivability here. I know there's at least one thing that I'll show you where there was a VA ECMO uh, patient in China that did survive. And actually, the other four of that, that center's patients also were doing well with VV ECMO. So 
it's hard to say like which what are the factors here that they're using exactly until we get the, the specifics of the data. Yeah. I will say that this week we will hear from the South Koreans and the Japanese on the ELSO webinar. I encourage you to, to listen to that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think important to try to, to learn from each other and to take the information that you're getting in the context of how that health system is functioning and how it reflects the health system that you have. Okay, so single organ disease, no multi-organ failure, young patients, no comorbidities, possibility of VA ECMO for myocarditis-related uh, COVID. Anything else? Um, yeah, I think um, the uh, concept of prolonged mechanical ventilation. So um, uh, that's something where we have other or existing data that mortality increases after mechanical ventilation for longer than seven days, maybe 10. So that's another thing to consider. And then other things that are relative contraindications, like problems with um, bleeding and coagulation um, or inability to accept blood products or um, potentially intracranial um, problems like um, cerebral vascular accident, um, poor neurologic exam or poor um, baseline functional status or intracranial hemorrhage may all be considerations of thinking about um, how do you find the person that is likely to, um, to survive. Yeah. Uh, how about eCPR? What what have you what has your center done with eCPR at this point? So at this point, um, we would be utilizing ECMO only for patients who are alive, trying to do the most good we can with the limited resources that we have. Um, and um, we have actually, um, you know, I think deciding whether or not to use VA ECMO is a really challenging thing that each ECMO program should think about given the propensity for these patients to decompensate. Um, at this point, we're, we're not planning to use VA ECMO um, for, um, for a cardiomyopathy or myocarditis. Yeah. So we're certainly behind you as far as the surge of COVID patients here in San Diego. We've, um, you know, we're probably in the 40 patient range uh, in the hospital, but we have also narrowed our eCPR inclusion criteria dramatically um, but we've not completely uh, gotten rid of it as of yet. That will probably be just a week away before we're very similar to you. Sure. And I think that that's one thing that I've, I, you know, I never really knew very much about disaster medicine prior to this, but have learned a lot from colleagues and, um, and ethicists that it is important to practice the standard of care as much as you can until you have to run into contingency planning once you start running um, lower on resources and then thinking, how can you surge to accept the increasing um, demand for critical care? And then not to um, be tempted to prematurely ration, to try to maintain this, the current standard of care as much as you can with the mind of keeping the most people alive as you can and offering an ICU bed to everyone who needs it, no matter what their disease. Because there's going to be other emergencies, there are going to be other illnesses for patients who are just as salvageable as a person with COVID and making sure that ECMO or thinking about utilizing resources for ECMO um, and in, the, in a very conscious way, looking at the demand of critical care for the, um, or the, your entire uh, hospital. Hmm. So good, Janelle. Uh, okay, that I think kind of wraps up this, this sort of real question we want to ask you, who do we put on? The, let's deal with a couple of the nuances. The hypercoagulability associated with this, are you changing your coagulation parameters at all? You know, it's funny you mentioned that I, when we cannulated someone a couple days ago, we noticed that we were having clotting all, already in cannulas and actually used more heparin than we normally do on initiation. 
Um, and so we'll kind of see, I have heard that, um, that these patients are having, um, a very high inflammatory state and, um, and maybe this is, uh, you know, associated with the hypercoagulability. We'll kind of have to see, um, and I'm really interested to hear from other colleagues if they have changed some of their, um, their anticoagulation strategies, which, um, you know, as of late, we have been, um, moving more towards less anticoagulation and less the complications of bleeding, but we'll kind of, well, we'll have to see what we what we what we learn. Yeah, I know it's interesting to see how this will go. Uh, the sort of another concept here was whether the filter. I know this got brought up at the ELSA webinar last week. Uh, whether the filter is sufficient uh, on the ECMO machine to keep people safe. Is that? Do you have any insight into that? Um, when you say filter, uh, talking about the um, the sweep I, gas into the into the um, oxygenator. Oh, thinking about the exhaust mm-hmm. and whether or not that there's any translocation of the. Um, you know, that's an interesting thought, um, and um, you know, I I I haven't I'm not aware of you know tr- of aerosolization or transmitting the virus or or that we are you know, it's certainly something to consider. Um, it's, and would have to, um, look a little bit more into the, uh, polymethylpentene fibers that we use in this and the membrane lung to understand, is there a potential risk, but it is certainly something to think about. Um, our current policy is, uh, using airborne precautions for anyone who is sick enough to be in the ICU. Hmm. Yes. Good, good, good call. Anything else, Janelle? No, thanks so much for having me, Zach. I think it'll it'll be you know really um, important for us in the ECMO community and the intensive care community to work together and share information and and each individual um, area and hospital to plan as much as you can and come up with protocols and contingency plans and know how important it is to be nimble as everything continues to change. All right, that's ECMO in the COVID patient. Man, Jamal and I probably talked for another hour after this. Uh, so many good things, the logistical problems of the ER, logistical problems in the ICU. You all are struggling with it. Uh, I'm proud to say that I'm a part of this community, that we are going through this and that uh, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Take-homes from this episode are consider VV ECMO in patients that have single-organ disease low comorbidities, young age. This thing probably does work. VV ECMO probably will save lives. The data on that, though, is certainly difficult to ascertain at this time. VA ECMO for myocarditis, even more murky. Can we say that these patients would do better? Well, if we consider previous myocarditis patients, then yes, they are a good candidate. However, multiple organ system failure, meaning respiratory and the heart, we just don't know. ECPR, you're probably going to have a much more limited scope as far as use of this with your resources. And it really gets into the bigger question of can you coordinate as a city, as a county, as a province, whatever your bigger group is, can you coordinate the ECMO available beds so that the patients who would do best with this can get them, that you don't get overrun in your ICU with patients that probably have a very poor prognosis Make sure you keep an open bed so that you can utilize this modality if needed. All right, March 2020, crazy time in medicine. Signing out, Zach Shiner, EDECMO.